This podcast, number 852, with Sarah Payton, is brought to you by Stephen Kotler, author of a new book entitled The Art of Impossible, a Peak Performance Primer. Stephen Kotler is one of the foremost authorities on flow and peak performance. In this interview with Stephen and I, we discuss the elements that are required to attain peak performance. To learn more about Stephen Kotler and his new book, please visit his website at www.stephenkotler.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R.com. And now for our feature podcast, please listen to my interview with Sarah Payton about her new book, Your Resident Self-Workbook, From Self-Sabotage to Self-Care. Happy listening and thanks for joining Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And today, joining me from, you said near Portland. Now, how close are you to Portland? I'm, I'm in Vancouver, Washington. I'm just across okay. the Columbia River. Oh, that's... My house to downtown Portland on a Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to be talking about Sarah Payton's new book called Your Resident... Your Resident Self Workbook. Um, this accompanies a book that she wrote some time ago, which is called Your Resident Self. And it is, it is uh, sold in a two bundle package. When you go to her website, you can see it there. Um, Sarah, it, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to spend a little bit of time with you and an opportunity for you to speak with my listeners about what it is that you do and how you help people with the pain they might be languishing with, the depression they might be languishing with around, I'm going to say, self-image. Um, you know, that's really a big thing. And whether or not they're enough um, when will we ever be enough? I've had this conversation a lot with authors lately, but I do want to let them know about your background. Sarah teaches and speaks internationally about the ways that relationship and language transform the brain and how they prevent and heal trauma by applying complex neuroscience concepts to real life with stories, role plays of research, meditations, and engaging dialogues. Audience members leave Sarah's presentations with more wisdom and self-compassion and often making sense to themselves for the first time. And I do believe you address a lot of people. A lot of people probably don't Admit that that's what's going on. Sarah is presented in businesses, universities, nonprofits, conferences, prisons, hospitals, churches. She's available for keynote speeches, workshops, um, talks, podcasts, webinars, and in-person and online trainings, and constellation work for families and groups of professionals, which we're going to talk a little bit about. That's an interesting topic. You can reach Sarah at S A R A H P E. Y-T-O-N. That's P-E-Y-T-O-N. Um, that's her website. It's a beautiful website and it has lots of resources, uh, blogs you can read. Um, you, you can get in touch with Sarah there. And I want to say, Sarah, before we get too deep into the interview, that she will be doing two live events that you can sign up for at the website. One is the 25th, which is the launch of this Norton book at 5 a.m. Pacific time. And the other one is on the 25th at 
at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, we will put links to her website so you can sign up for that. Um, but those are the two big events around the workbook itself. Obviously, um, the workbook goes with the book, but you don't really have to read this book first to do this. That's my point. Um, but it would help. It would help. Um, so at any rate, you know, you were raised in Alaska. Um, you with the natives. Um, it sounded like there was some trauma in your life, lots of it uh, uh, during your childhood. And it obviously formulated into a negative self-image, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and dealing with that, you write about you carrying a book at stoplights. I thought that was interesting <laughs> and opening the book up. Um, you know, it my, on my show, I actually kind of get into some of the little details. So, but in the advanced praise for the workbook, Dr. Bruce Nailwith describes it as a powerful and comprehensive resource to tool for people wanting to increase the flow of life and love in their lives. Um, Could you speak to our audience about how they can effectively use the workbook to increase the flow of love and life in their lives Mm -hmm. and other ways that you might be able to help them with your workshops and events that you're doing? Oh, yeah. Well, this this book is... um, it came directly out of the experience of writing book one and traveling all over the world and, um, and being with uh, folks. Uh, and I would say, here's what's so wonderful about self-warmth. Self-warmth changes us. Self-warmth integrates our brains. Self-warmth gives us a really great place to be. And just kind of to circle back around to Alaska for one little minute, I, I was raised in the, in the University of Alaska atmosphere with, regular white parents had some contact with folks who were first nations people up there and they were lovely people and not part of my trauma just to, just to completely d- differentiate that but um the um but what happened was i would travel all over the world and when i was out uh, people would say to me yeah sure it makes great sense that i should be warm with myself and i can't do it it is not possible for me so I start to think, what's the very, because I love brains. Brains always make great sense to me. Once we start to understand the brain, we start to understand people. And so trauma leaves a particular kind of stamp on people's brains. We can even see the stamps. Uh, if we do MRIs, we can see the differences between brains that have had no abuse, brains that have had particular kinds of abuse. It leaves like visual scars in our brains. And what the work that I do is all about, how does relationship heal us? How? What are the natural parts of being human that, kind of get in there and actually transform the way we respond to stress, improve our immune systems, no matter what kind of structures we've been left with from our childhoods, what do we get to do now? That's always my interest. Well, you know, you, you talk, you talk about these unconscious contracts or agreements that we've made. And I think when, when somebody's in anxiety or fear or, uh, depression. Um, it's a pretty common thing to get, and I, and I could say this because I used to have anxiety attacks. You get a little bit neurotic. Mm-hmm. 
um, <laughs> you start to basically have patterns that you follow so that you don't have the pain again. So you start to push things away that you would normally do because you have remembrance of the pain that was associated with that. How do you help people rewire and refire those events in their lives um, so that they don't carry so much pain? Because it is, you know, I am in hypnosis now and I regularly say that because the subconscious mind is so powerful. Right. And I'm just wondering how, you know, when you read, when you do your meditations and you do the workbook and you hear the stories and you work with people, it obviously must have a very, you know, it was a Byron Katie who was on the show quite a while ago, but I still remember. And she said, people would make up these stories, right, Sarah? And she'd bring them up in front of the audience. And that was her key. That was her keynote. Is it true? Is it really true? Right? And I always loved what she said because, you know, we make stuff up and it's really not true. And then we begin to believe it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is very, this has elements of that, this approach to like, why does it make sense if we can't make, be warm with ourselves? It's because we've made an agreement with ourselves based on our own integrity that there's, that we shouldn't, that. Sarah should not be a person who receives warmth. She doesn't deserve it. That's the way people's minds work is that we kind of take on whatever the punitive style of raising children is that we've grown up around and we take it inside of ourselves and we try to raise ourselves that way. Mm. So the, so the finding out what those contracts are, what are those agreements not to be kind to ourselves and, and how do they make sense in our family of origin? Because if we're kind to ourselves, but our mother was never kind to herself, it's like we become a different species. We have to leave that species of family behind. Right. Be incredibly lonely. As you know, from being in this field of personal growth and transformation and watching people change, Greg, you've seen the way that people then have to create new communities for themselves based on their healing. Well, you know, you've traveled the world speaking, talking to people, meeting all kinds of people, both male and female. I don't think that this is gender specific. Um, I have a feeling, though, it might have a propensity of being more female than male, um, simply because of how body image and all kinds of things play a role in all of this. But in the introduction book, you talk about traveling uh, and teaching people resonant language. Can you share that experience to the listeners about what is this resonant language? Because I think if we're going to talk to ourselves and it's negative self-talk and we can replace it with positive self-talk, which is, you know, kind of the uh, positive growth world, right? It's like, how are we talking to ourselves? So how do you help people kind of replace this old language and the patterns? Yes. So replacing the old language in this approach is very much about listening to what are the deep longings that are there. So if I'm telling myself I'm stupid, I wonder what the emotion is. Am I angry at myself? Am I feeling helpless? Am I feeling discouraged? Am I feeling sad? And and then what is that what does that voice want from me? You know, does it just want Sarah to straighten up and fly right? does it does it want sarah to be successful in the world to have friends and warmth and enough of money to be able to make it you know 
what do those voices want from us? They want our success. They want our well-being. And as we start to hear that, we come to this idea that what we're hearing in our own brains is not truth. It's trauma. It's not truth, it's trauma. That is a really good statement. Mm -hmm. If my listeners just took that away, that's worth the whole podcast. (laughs) It's not truth, it's trauma. Well, so, you know, look in this workbook, you have stories, and then people can write about their stories, and then people can do certain things, right? Kind of to work themselves out of this. What are those things that you help people work through or some of the things, because I remember you mentioned, mentioning them not only at the website, but they're in the book, they're in the workbook, obviously. Um, and as we said, this stands alone. You don't yeah. need to actually buy the other book to do this. But um, what would that be, Sarah? What would you tell our listeners? Well, what we what we do is we is we take a look at the way we've made the agreements and why we've made the agreement. So, what's the contract and what are the clauses of the contract? If I've made an agreement with myself to never be on time, which I might protest, I might say, "Oh, I don't want to know about that. I don't. I don't. I, I'm never on time, but I don't have a contract with myself." But just for a moment. Step into the possibility that you do, that you do make perfect sense. That's our very first starting point. If I make perfect sense, why am I doing this self-sabotaging behavior? And so what's the in order to? I will always be late in order to, and then you just, you go into your own body and you listen kind of for the truth that's here of, of what are you balancing? Who, who are you taking care of? Who is harmed if you're on time? Who are you? Who are you being loyal to? How how are you making your mother right if you are always late? How are you accompanying your father in his inability to keep a job, for example? There are so many ways that we are deeply loving little relational beings that make these agreements long before we're adults, and then we reach our adult lives. We're supposed to be making our own life work instead of making our parents' life work, but we're left with these sort of structures and beliefs and habits from early childhood. How can we look at them? Mm -hmm. The beautiful work of Daniel Siegel shows us that we need to name stuff in order for it not to have power over us. All the things that are running around inside of us that have never been given words, those things have power over us. Yeah, you know, you you speak about the different kinds of default mode network is what you call it, or the DMN. Can you speak about the different kinds of DMN and how they affect and change people? What is it that this default mode network is? The default mode network was discovered by scientists who thought they were looking at white noise in people's brains for about 10 years when in between giving them algebra problems to do inside MRI, MRI machines, they would see this kind of static and they would go, this is the white noise of the brain. Then about 10 years in, they said, the white noise has a pattern. <laughs> it's not actually white noise. It actually appears to be doing something. So they asked everybody, what are you doing when you're not doing the algebra problems? And people were like, well, I'm thinking about my mom. 
or I'm worrying about my Aunt Agatha who's sick, or I just realized I forgot Uncle Bernie's birthday, or my taxes need to be paid and I forgot my first quarter sales taxes. So people's brains were kind of have a default mode, an automatic way that they run when we're not asking them to do other stuff that's kind of picking up all the little crumbs of our life and putting it back together. So it's helping us not to be so fractured. And in the best of all possible worlds, type number one default mode network, immensely creative and generative. Type number two default mode network, uh, a little bit stressed, always worrying about what's going to go wrong. Type number three default mode network, self-lacerating, vicious, murderous self-criticism. That's type three. And that really comes from trauma. So that's part of why we say it's not truth, it's trauma. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's so apparent that the psychology behind this and the neuroscience is so important for people to understand. And, um, you know, we do start to fall into patterns and we do start to make up stories. Um, we make up those stories for protection. And in the subtitle here, from self-sabotage to self-care, I think that's important. And in one of your chapters, you talk about resolving the past. How important is tracking intrusive memories and understanding trauma in resolving the past? Because, you know, look, I think a lot of people, um, me included for a long time, you sweep it under the carpet. Yeah. And you do not want to uh, address it. Uh, I remember it's my own personal story, but you know, I've told the uh, other audiences this before. You know, I, I went to university, USM to get a degree in spiritual psychology, and we did a lot of this work um, in trios. And one of mine was a, a pattern and a thing that I'd held about not being confrontational because I got in between my mother and father during a fight and my father hit me and pushed me down to the ground. And he said, if you ever get in between me again, you know, and he was very angry and he was holding me up against the wall. Now that is a deep seated trauma yeah. that, you know, very tough until you are able to actually work through it. How would you advise somebody in understanding that trauma and resolving it from the past? One of the most beautiful ways to work is is a, there are many, many avenues. Every healing modality has its own way in. One of the ways that I enjoy the most and teach the most is a way that was that was verified by the um, case study done by Ruth Lanius, where she was looking at what I call time travel and um, and where she where in the modality she was looking at people would time travel with enormous like giant black panthers who are very protective and warm who would come into the memory and protect the little one. I tend to travel with what I call the resonating self-witness, your resonant self, that we travel with ourselves as an enormously warm protector who would come, who would carefully make the father safe and harmless, who would take the little boy and make sure that he feels safe either with touch or if the boy doesn't want to be touched with respectful distance and acknowledgement to be in a dialogue with the little ones that have lived through the trauma, not rehashing every detail in any way, but rather just making sure we understand what are the feelings, what are the needs, what are the longings, how, it, how does the child feel understood? 
as we step back through time to be with them. As the child feels understood, their body relaxes. Mm -hmm. Do you want to come home with me? We actually survived this. This is actually a memory and you don't have to stay here. You get to come home with me. It's, I have a friend who says, we turn traumatic experience into our life story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, And I remember we didn't approach it the same way, but I do remember doing a gestalt therapy with my father, several, Uh where I took the role from chair to chair and got to ask questions. And I found it very, very um, relaxing for what he was telling me, which was, you know, he didn't know any different and was brought up the same way. And, you know, we had these long dialogues, which were great. And I think you're advocating something even very close to, not the same, but you did say dialogue. So, you know, and and it's important for people to dig into that and really go there with it. Uh, Even if there's pain or there's crying or there's whatever, or emotion or upset, Um, You know, in one of your chapters, too, you mentioned that there is a confusion for many of us about uh, the chasm between our intentions for self-care and the realities of our self-sabotaging actions. Can you enlighten our listeners on how this can be avoided so they'll be able to carry out those best intentions that they would like to carry out? Mm -hmm. Well, The first thing is that our self-sabotage makes sense. So we get to be really warm and affectionate with the self-sabotaging part of ourselves. So self-care can have so many elements. It can have diet, exercise, sleep, um, rest and play. um, But let's just take exercise for an example, like that we'll wake up in the morning and we're like, today I'm going to (laughs) exercise. Right. That night we go to sleep and go, Dang, I never did exercise today. <laughs> yeah. We wake up the next morning and go, today, today, I'm going <laughs> to. <laughs> we get on Amazon, we order the dumbbells, they stay <laughs> dusty in the corner. <laughs> so, but what if we're making sense with our, not, with our not exercising? What if we are like as warm with why we're not exercising as we would be with uh, a toddler who's afraid to go to school? Like, what if we're just warm, 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 and have a warm curiosity for ourselves and begin to look at what are our agreements with ourselves and how can we change them so that the desire to do the things that we want to do becomes more playful and more enriching and satisfying. How do you ever, how do you help people question they're doing the things they want to do and where that it's coming from? In other words, how do we know that that I know this is an interesting question, but how do we know that's real or that that's being we're being subjected or we're being influenced by the outside world that says, you know what, Sarah, you should exercise. Yeah. You know, you the outside world is saying you weigh too much or you this or you should be two sizes smaller or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yet, on the other hand, the inside is saying, no, I want to nurture myself. I don't want to wake up at five in the morning and get on the exercise bike and, you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. So you're following me? So yeah. do, do you have a a way to, I used to call it, um, you know, it was kind of like the listen to your intuition, get the signals 
mm-hmm. um, and really pay attention to what that is telling you because you can get some truth there because a lot of time the ego is driving some of those other decisions. Yeah, this is a great question. One of the ways that I work with it is I actually kind of step into becoming the outer world to look at myself so I can see what's me and what's the outer world. If the outer world's looking at Sarah, what does the outer world see? And how? And if I let the outer world have what it's looking at, like, okay, that's the outer world. That's not me. There's an initial kind of differentiation between who we are and how we're seen by others or by our parents mm-hmm. or by the outer world. And oftentimes when people step into that world, they'll go, oh, dear, the outer world is suspiciously like my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Good point you make. Now, in chapter four and seven, you cited basic circuits of neuroscientists and emotions researchers. And I I don't want to mess up this gentleman's name. It's Jack Panesk. How do you say it? Panksep. Panksep. Estonian ancestry. Okay. And you um, uh, you added D I. G U S T discussed to yeah the list of circuits. Can you talk about the seven circuits and what led you to add uh, discussed to this list? Yes. So Yak Pangsep was an amazing researcher who uh, discovered that animals have like seven main bus lines that energy and information are traveling on in the brain. Seven main bus lines that handle almost all of our, all of our transportation needs inside the brain. <laughs> and, um, and what he discovered was that we, we have a very big and important circuit called the seeking circuit that's trying to get things done. And then we have a bunch of other circuits that are, have a lot more to do with emotion. We have a fear circuit. We have an anger circuit. We have a play circuit. We have a sexuality circuit. Um, and we have a care circuit, we have a grief circuit. So here we are with all these different circuits. And these circuits are like really important. They're important for naming. So w- the way the body completes its, uh, completes its sense that its information has been received by the brain is when we identify our emotional experience with clear emotions words. If we're angry, but we have to say that we're afraid, it doesn't relax the body. If we're angry and we get to say, of course I was angry, of course I'm angry, then that settles the body. The body's like, yes, the match has happened between the words and the emotion. They come up through the amygdala, they meet, it comes up through the amygdala, the insula has the words, there's a reaching, there's a naming, there's a settling. But if we never name, then we don't settle. And one of the things I discovered was that in our world, we often don't realize the importance of an alarm state of aloneness. We say fight, we say flight, but we don't say alarmed aloneness. We imply that any upset is either fear or anger, when in fact, much of our upset is about being alone and not wanting to be alone, just like little babies when they're separated from their mother. That's part of the mammalian panic grief circuit. So if we name alarmed aloneness, then the body settles. It goes, oh, I've never had that word before. I've done this all over the world. And people will come up to me afterwards. They'll say, that was very interesting. But the most important thing was alarmed aloneness. Now I know 
It's been six decades of alarmed aloneness for me. And their body settles with the naming. So here I was playing with these seven circuits that Panksepta discovered. It's interesting to say that, not to interrupt you, but I've recently gotten uh, a a bit addicted to a a show called Alone, which is in the Vancouver Islands. They drop these people off and they're survivalists and they have to live with themselves in these tents for as long as they can in some pretty, I'm the Vancouver Island is probably one of the harshest weather conditions with the amount of rainfall and whatever going on. And the reason I say this is because psychologically they're videotaping themselves. They are while they're in their tents or they're out trying to find food or they're doing whatever. And you see the, how aloneness, the thing that breaks everybody mm. in the end mm. is this uh, being desolate in the middle of nowhere on Vancouver Island with nobody, mm. right? So the, there is really a true element there to this aloneness because psychologically they could live there forever, probably with just continuing to do what they're doing, but they can't stand being alone. Mm. We are are social animals. We have in our skin neurons that are dedicated to perceiving each other's body heat. Mm -hmm. These neurons are not dedicated to telling it's too hot or too cold. These neurons only light up with the temperature range of body heat. Mm. We are soothed and comforted by one another's physical beings cellularly. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's great. the, The work that you're doing. Now, you added the one-one work with Katie in Chapter 5. And can you share your experience uh, working with uh, Kate and what important lessons can our audience get from that? And you probably ought to define who Kate is. Yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the book, each chapter has a story that somebody brings and then does a little bit of work with the contract so that we have, like, narratives that help Right. Us. I noticed all the stories. Yes. Yeah. And Kate had a particular story. In Kate's story, Kate, Kate's, Kate was intruded upon by the police. They, they bur- burst down her door. They broke down her door and came in uh, without any consent. And uh, it was terrifying for her. And so we were working with both the contracts that she made. Was, like to always be alarmed. Always mm. to be alarmed. Always so she was always anxious too. To stay yeah. in a state of fear. Yeah. And we were looking at what was the contract, but then we realized, oh, there's unresolved trauma. So we did a time travel to make sure that she had a sense that she was accompanied. And once she had a sense of being accompanied in the memory, that contract disappeared. We did not even have to do the contract release. It was, it, we were, the experience of, having made the contract was that the strings and the knots were tied by the experience of the way the brain locks in trauma until we get company who really understands us to go with us in our experience of the trauma. Great way to help her heal, you know, and come through it. I mean, I, it's hardly hard to imagine to be kind of abruptly interrupted and, you know, like broken into, as you said, somebody came through the door and then carry this old story about that, and then then that exacerbated it even further. So you had to go back and do the healing from the whole circuits, all the circuits. So, you know, um, 
I have lots of friends that do poetry, and you talk about poetry as one of the most mysterious ways that we can use language to begin to touch experience. Um, can you tell us about this and how this works? Because most people, you know, if you look at books on poetry, I have a friend that sends them to me all the time because he's um, he's a poet, but I, I think that the average person listening doesn't probably, and I don't want to say this unequivocally, but they don't get as much from poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, if you really spend time with it, you know, I was thinking of uh, the inauguration of Biden and the young lady who's mm-hmm. doing the poetry and now her book is out and, you know, this kind of thing and how eloquent the delivery is of the poetry that it makes sense to everybody. Because it's almost like rap, actually. It's a little bit of a rappy kind of poetry. <laughs> yeah, spoken word. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Evolution of poetry is very interesting. I have a friend who says that our very first psychotherapy was song. He's a friend in Ireland, and I brought him over to the U.S., and I had him do a workshop for us that was about understanding immigration, understanding what it was like to immigrate, have goosebumps, from Ireland or from other places that were far away from North America in the late 1800s. Right. Of course, we can't quite imagine that, right? But when we start to sing the songs that they wrote, it just makes you weep. It makes me just even think of it. And poetry, of course, is song with the music. Taken (laughs) out. Somewhat removed. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, usually it is. It's it yeah. depends on what kind of. Uh, I know haiku is a little different, but yes, it course. depends on the kind of poetry that you're reading. So, where do you? What's the experience with the poetry? And is there is there any particular poets that you would recommend that would help during this healing work? Mm-hmm. Because there's got to be people out there that are writing about healing, healing oneself, mm-hmm. um, and are experiencing the same journey. So, do you have mm-hmm. any recommendations for the listeners? Well, uh, I think people, myself included, so many of us love Mary Oliver. I think Mary Oliver, John O'Donohue, these are, and uh, David White. Oh, David White, yeah. Whose work. From the Orcas Islands. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, his stuff is great. David White. Yeah. Yeah. Do they say White or White? I think it's White. I might oh. be wrong. W-H-Y-T-E, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Never heard it pronounced, maybe, even. Yeah. But he is he is phenomenal. I've read a lot. I, now that you've brought it up, mm-hmm. I'm going to go back and get a couple of those books off the shelf. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in Chapter 9, you talk about the four foundations of self-disgust. What are these foundations, and why are these important in knowing our boundaries, and our capacities. Mm. Well, the very first thing with self-disgust is, again, it's not truth, it's trauma. Just remembering that. But the foundations are that self-disgust helps us make ourselves small, helps us, for all humans, we're kind of on a continuum. Like, do we get to be ourselves and do we get to belong? And where does that meet? Do we get to, do we have to retract being ourselves in order to belong? Do we have to not belong in order to be ourselves is the question. And so uh, if we can kind of be disgusted with ourselves, we 
we we make the bow, we make the self expression line pull back, and then we're going to be safer in our belonging. So that's the first one. The next one is that it's a bit like what we've learned from our parents is the way you start a car that won't start is you kick it <laughs> instead of mm-hmm. instead of finding the key and turning on the engine you kick the car yeah. and that's what we're doing with self disgust we're trying to turn on our own car engine because that's what we were taught to be motivated with contempt or with disgust so that's the second big one the third one is that it's kind of an after effect of a way that we leave ourselves that we walk away from ourselves uh, Sarah does something. I cannot bear that she did that. I am just going to have disgust for the Sarah that did that, and I'm going to walk away from her. Mm-hmm. That's the third one. And then the fourth one is kind of like, we also learned this one. It's a little like number two, but it's slightly different. It's like a mutated self-care where we're using predatory aggression, which is part of the seeking circuit, to try to, you know, to try to take care of all the things and make Sarah stop making mistakes, for goodness sake, and make her be on time and try to take care of her by having, of course, this self-loathing that then ends up being quite self-sabotaging. So, Well, the third one is the one I think that probably gets used the most yeah, yeah. Uh, by people. It really is. Now, um, you... In chapter 10, you've added an image of journey into depression, and you had bouts with depression, obviously. Yeah. You write about it. You're very open about it. Um, and another image of journey out of depression. Yeah. And um, I remember uh, two doctors that came on here about how these drugs today, Zoloft and whatever, we, they're looking for natural ways out of depression. Um, and Dr. James Gordon is one of them, um, who I can highly recommend for those listeners. I'll put a link to the website. But you talk to our audience about the message that you want to impart about depression. You obviously suffered from it. Um, I'm not certain if you are on any drugs or medications for it. But the world wants to give you a pill, and they think that's going to get rid of depression. And the reality is that depression wasn't caused by a pill. And probably 90% of the time, Dr. Gordon says, the pill isn't going to take the depression away either. Um, And we're finding some interesting uh, stats recently, too. I have a friend who was at USM with me, uh, Sarah, who... um, started getting depressed and the doctors put him on one of those drugs, Zoloft, whatever. And this is a common occurrence now in this drug. I think it's Zoloft. Um, they commit suicide oh my God. because the drug itself oh is inducing even more. Now this is now ha- a common occurrence. These drug companies are not um, coughing it up, obviously, but the reality is I know, you know, and I think you can speak to my listeners that most likely, and we're not advocating going off of your medicine, what we're saying is there's other things you can do to relieve this depression. Yeah. And I'd like for you to kind of tell them what you they can do. Well, anecdotally, folks who are on antidepressants and who start to practice this material are able to decrease their dose. Right. I haven't had people completely go off their medication, but I have had people tell me, I'm at half of what I used to be just from practicing these self-warmth practices. 
So part of, part of, for me, part of the path of healing from depression is really starting to let in that we are not alone, Mm -hmm. to let ourselves, like when we can't get out of bed in the morning, to say, okay, I can't get out of bed in the morning. Whose love do I need to help me get out of this bed in the morning? Whose love do I need to be able to lift my hand up, to be able to brush my teeth and to be able to open the shower door to get in there? You know, whose love do I need to be carried with? Because part of the reason I believe that we are suffering so greatly from depression and part of the reason that depression rates have raised by multiple tens of percent over the COVID experience is isolation, isolation, (laughs) isolation. We have these wonderful heat-seeking neurons in our skin that are that are like going. Where's the body heat? Where are the people? Where's my? Where are my buddies? Where's my family? Where are my people? And uh, and and it can be hard in today's world to find our people. So are we willing to let you know whatever it is we love and that we have a sense loves us? The trees help us. Are we willing to let our ancestors help us? I I started calling on ancestors as I was beginning my healing journey from depression and couldn't get out of bed. I was like, "Okay, guys, I can't get up. Are you gonna Are you gonna help me here?" And I would have this sense of of ancestors really coming to be with me and help my body get out of bed. So so becoming willing to turn toward healing even if we can't do anything about it and right. willing to receive support, even if we can't generate it ourselves, how can we call on it? Is there a sense of God we can call on? Is there a sense of ancestors of divinity of the divine feminine of the wild goddess of Jesus, of, um, of nature, of trees, of the landscape? We well, can. self-nurturing and care mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. is so important. And I think there's this buildup up of non-self-nurturing and care that occurs to a point where people then get more and more frustrated because they haven't been doing the things that they know will make them a better person, that will give them a better mental attitude, which Mm -hmm. will drag them out of depression. So they get in these cycles, Sarah, and it's hard to break out of those cycles because they don't have the techniques to break out. Mm -hmm. They don't change the habit or the pattern. Um, I always, we used to say at USM, if I took a camera, a video camera, and I watched you for a full day, 24 hours, Sarah, and I replayed the video, would you like what you saw? And the reality is, I'm not certain everybody would like what they saw. What they did during the day um, didn't bring them the joy, the peace, the compassion, the self-nurturing that they wanted. So what I was going to ask you is, you know, if you were to leave our listeners with three takeaways from this interview, um, what are those three things that you want them to remember and to incorporate or they could incorporate into their life? Obviously, this book, if taken and used as it says, say workbook, I'd almost like to say it as a guidebook. Mm. Um, It is a guidebook. Yes, you do have work in here to do, but also You know, it's the fact that you resonate with the words and you, and you make this, you, you, I'm just turned to a page, anxiety contract template. Um, You know, the tools that she gives you, you may only need a few of these tools. You might not need all of them, right? 
And the reality is if you find the tool that helps you heal yourself, then you're on your way. And so what are the couple, three things out of your uh, workbook that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yes. The very first is starting to understand the importance of self-warmth. That self-warmth is not a selfish act. It's an act of radical transformation of the world. Second thing is, if your brain is being mean to you, it's not truth, it's drama. The third thing is, if I can't do something, if I can't be self-warm, if I can't have self-warmth, if I can't even believe that it's trauma and not truth, then I might have a contract. And what Mm. shall I do to begin to release my contract? Well, for all of my listeners, Sarah, on the 25th of May, either at 5 a.m. Pacific time, uh, that's for all of you in the other parts of the world that listen to this podcast, go to Sarah's website, which is just her name, Sarah, P-E-Y-T-O-N.com. Sign up to go to that workshop. There's another one, again, at noon Pacific time uh, that you can sign up for. Also, these can be purchased as a bundle. You can get them on Amazon that way. You can get them from Sarah that way. I noticed you've got a push button at your website to do that as well. Um, It's obviously good if you read this first. But again, like she said, you don't have to. This is a standalone. You can take this book and do it by itself. Sarah, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth, bringing some peace and understanding Um, and comfort and self-nurturing and care to our listeners this morning. Uh, It's something we all need to do more of, especially during these times of just constant flux. I did did an interview with uh, April Rennie from Portland yesterday, actually, who's got a book about called Flux, Eight Superpowers, that we can use during constant change. Mm -hmm. And boy, does it seem like things changing really fast, you know? And as a species, I don't think we always want to default back to, we'd almost prefer that it didn't change. But the reality is it does, and it is, and we have to learn how to cope with it. So your book helps people cope with change but in a positive way, taking them from destructive patterns to constructive patterns and patterns of self-care and warmth and nurturing. And thank you so much for being you and for spending your life work doing this work and getting this message out. Again, for my listeners, Sarah, P-A-E-Y-T-O-N, P-E-Y-T-O-N.com. And we'll have that link in our blog. Namaste to you, Sarah. Thank you so much for being on. I appreciate it. Great fun to be here with you.